This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. A few months ago, I celebrated the life of my 96-year-old mother with my eight brothers and sisters. And I'm standing on her legacy that meets my future and my present moment. I'm glad to have this opportunity to facilitate this plenary session, Ubuntu, because of you I am and because I am you are as we look at and focus on the 2024 elections or elections that are going to occur between them and have this expert data panelist to give us insight into the culture of our elections here in this country. John Lewis, who is a graduate of American Baptist College, frames for us best how important it is to vote. He said voting is almost something sacred. In fact, his experience of Bloody Sunday and all of the voting rights struggles that he faced and many others why not for us, after so much of our struggle in this country has kept us from the ballot, attempted to keep us powerless before the ballot, but today we stand on the struggles and victories of those who fought for the ballot, and we now are citizens able to vote. Can you give that a celebration? I think it's a necessary freedom that we have won and we ought not neglect. Mark Thompson is going to frame this plenary session for us and introduce our panelists. Mark Thompson has spent most of his life as a political, civil rights, human rights activist and organizer. He not only has been a part of every major social justice movement and event over the past 35 years, 
but has also been a radio broadcaster for three decades. And he has spent over 10 years of television uh, commentator, as a commentator, as well, Mark has host Make It Plain, a political human rights and non-mainstream news broadcast. Mark's lifelong social justice activism intersects with the years of experience broadcasting the new and the news and the issues of today. I'm so glad to have Mark to come and frame the plenary session as well as introduce the panelists. Again, we are all glad to be here today. Praise God. Let's hear it for Dr. Harris. Give him a round of applause. All right. How's everybody feel this morning? How's everybody feel this morning? We full in the spirit? Has this not been an incredible prop to conference? Let's once again applaud all of the organizers, the staff. I asked, I saw Dr. Forbes earlier, there's Freddie Haynes. I asked Dr. Forbes yesterday, and Dr. Forbes has been probably to every religious, faith, ministerial, layperson conference there's ever been. Right? Amen? And I asked him, is there anything like this gathering? He said, no. He has never experienced anything like it. And I think we would all agree, part of the reason for that is because of the spirit that abides here in Proctor, the feeling we get, the vibe. Many of us are in ministry and in faith work and in faith institutions because we heard the call from God. Amen? But there's so much noise in the world today, God's voice gets drowned out, doesn't it? And it seems that when we come to Proctor, we can hear God's voice loud in our ears again. Don't you think? So in that vein, we are going to have our panel, but toward the end, there's a little housekeeping um, that I've um, kind of been asked to do. So we'll do that in, on behalf of Proctor. But God bless Dr. Alva Carruthers. I think she's around or she's coming and thankful to all of you for being here. Let's, let's meet our esteemed panel, uh, and I will begin. We're not going to do long introductions. We're going to go right into a conversation and uh, have some Q&A from the audience and hopefully have enough time uh, to do that. Uh, first of all, I'll start to my far left the pastor. We're going to introduce everyone, and I'm going to start with a, with a center question. Uh, please um, bless the Lord for the pastor of the Abyssinian Church in Memphis, where Tyree Nichols lived, the Reverend Dr. Earl Fisher. Please welcome him. Uh, to his right, our queen sister said to me yesterday, you know, 
you're going to have to help me out because this is not really my lane, meaning she's not, it's, it's so much in the clergy. But how many heard Lisa Sharon Harper yesterday talk about the DNA of her ancestors running through her? as all of us, we are our ancestors, future and legacy. This is, first of all, we know her as the president of the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, the chair of the New York City Racial Justice Commission. But in terms of that DNA running through, this is the flesh of the flesh and blood of the blood of, and I'm gonna, I like to do his voice, of the Reverend Dr. William Augustus Jones. <laughs> Jennifer Jones Austin. So you are in the right place. Uh, our dear brother who was here uh, up late last night conferring with Dr. Bozak talking about the anti-apartheid struggle. And we know the role this organization played in that struggle to rid South Africa of apartheid. And he is the successor of another legend in our movement, William Lucy, who, amen. And we wanna keep Bill Lucy lifted in prayer. Uh, he organized the sanitation workers strike in Memphis. The movement that Dr. King gave his life for that was his Calvary in Memphis. The president of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, the Reverend Dr. Terry Melvin, give him a round of applause. <laughs> of course, our dear sister, also uh, chair of the board, co-chair of the board of Proctor, she tore up the first day we were here and has kept us in that, amen, Freddie, kept us in that Pentecostal vein um, she was the first African-American and African-American woman to be the CEO of a Democratic convention. And to this day, to this day, there are very few political decisions made in this country for which she is not consulted to be a part of. And also now, and, and the successor, again, this, this lineage here, Bill Jones, Bill Lucy, Herbert Daughtry, her father. Su succession, succession now. Would, would, would we talk about that this week? The torch passed to a woman, and that's, that's a whole other thing we're dealing with here, the issue of gender and women in leadership. She is now the successor to her father, the great Reverend Dr. Herbert Daughtry, the presiding bishop of the House of the Lord Churches, Leah Daughtry, Bishop Leah Daughtry. And uh, I said I'm gonna do long introductions, but y'all are so, you gotta know who these people, we have to know who we are and call. My brother here is a violence interrupter the work he is doing around the country. We talk about police violence. Not only does he deal with that, he is helping to interrupt the gun violence that is taking place in our communities, whether it's being perpetrated by 
those committing crimes or whether it's happening in our homes accidentally. He is on top of that and secured from the Biden administration billions of dollars for funds to go to violence interrupting organizations in the black community. Um, the founder of Live Free USA and the black church, co-founder of the black church pack, our dear brother, Pastor Michael McBride. Please welcome him as well. Amen. So I want to begin um, this way and why don't we go in reverse order and I'll just ask a question and we'll go down and get some responses and have some back, um, back and forth. What, Pastor Mike, beginning with you, is the position we're in as we prepare to look at another election season. And mind you, we'll talk about this too. There's some elections going on right now in our communities, but as we talk about elections and issues, what is our posture, what is our position? Are we, what is the state of our people as we prepare to continue with our demands, our redress of grievances going into this election season and beyond? Well, it certainly is great to be here with, with everyone. Uh, I always uh, believe that it's important to remind ourselves that the greatest number of voters in this country are non-voters. Wow. Me and Reverend Earl were talking about this yesterday that the majority of our communities are being literally elected by an extreme minority of the population of our cities and counties and country. And voting has become big business. People can become rich off of the voting industry, whether they win or lose. Um, and so I do think we have to continue to contend with this reality that um, elections, though important, are only an expression of the success or failure of our ability to build people power in between elections. And we have, uh, I think, a continuous task to uh, imagine or be accountable to what what is the role of institutions, black-led institutions, churches, universities, you know, spaces where knowledge, wisdom, strategy, power is coalescing to ensure that we are an informed electorate to the extent that we as black folks show up to vote, that we are not showing up to vote for things that are literally against our interests regardless of who is uh, the candidate, how do we move beyond the personality politics of voting and really get down to an agenda um, that can indeed catalyze the largest block of voters in this country, which continue to be non-voters. Thank you, uh, Mark, and to all my panelists. So 
happy to be able to serve with you. Before I offer remarks, I do want to make one note. Mark referenced me as the first African-American woman to run a Democratic convention, and I'm actually not the first. The first is the Honorable Alexis Herman, who was the 23rd Secretary of Labor, and she trained me talking about succession. She ran the 1992 convention that nominated Bill Clinton, and then I came in 2008, and I ran Barack Obama's convention and then Hillary Clinton's convention. So I'm the only person to have done it twice. <laughs> there was a first in there somewhere. There was a first in there somewhere. <laughs> So I just want to make, we've got to make sure the history is, is correct. Um, here's what I would say. You, the, the task of liberation requires many tools. Voting is one of those tools. It's not the only one, but it's one leg on the stool. And so piggybacking on what uh, Pastor Mike said, it's imperative for us to educate voters, to activate voters, and to mobilize voters. When you think about the fact that the largest concentration of African-American voters is in Mississippi, but look who their elected officials are, because they don't vote. In a state where they should control everything, they control nothing because they have not been appropriately, and some of that's our own fault, appropriately motivated and mobilized add voter suppression tactics, and we're running an uphill battle. The, the imperative for us who have uh, electoral consciousness is to make it a mission to get a voter, register a voter, not just get them to the polls, and help them understand the importance of their vote. Stacey Abrams would be governor, but for 50,000 votes in a state of millions. What would be the difference between Governor Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp? A whole lot. And multiply that across all of our states where the margins are so narrow, African-American voters can make the difference. And when we don't or we choose not to engage because we fall into the myth that people like to feed us that our vote doesn't matter and that the system's not going to change. How do you think Pastor Mike got all these millions and millions of dollars? He wouldn't have got it from Trump. He said he wouldn't have asked. But the fact of the matter is what Frederick Douglass said all those years, power concedes nothing without a demand. Never has, never will. Our vote is our demand, which then we must put legs on the action. After the elected official is in office, we don't sit back and go, oh, they there, so they're going to do the right thing. No, they're not. How do we hold them accountable? Politics is the only place where we hire somebody give them a job, give them an office, and then we don't ever go back and check on them and do the performance review. I don't know about you, but every job I had, there was a three month, a six month, a one year, and if you wanna do the job, you get fired. We have to become in the habit as a community of holding our elected officials as accountable as we hold our preachers and as we hold each other.
Thank you so much. Um, well, as we attempt to hold them accountable, I heard you. <laughs> I'm from the Talk Back Church. I hear the audience. <laughs> I don't know how I got behind Bishop Daltrey, but anyway. Um, the, the question of where we are right now uh, in our community and in our churches as it relates to the electorate, I think we are practicing insanity. I think we are doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I, I think we go out there and we, we, we wait till three, four months before the election and we start talking about how important the election is. 1957, Martin was out there, and Martin, you know, we just talked about Martin. We go over at the church the other night, you know, we talked about Martin. Martin, 57, Martin said, give us the ballot. Give us the ballot, we can put the right folks on, on, in, in office to, to make laws that's gonna take care of all of us. He said, give us the ballot. He said, give us the ballot, and if you give us the ballot, we can put people on the courts that'll look out for all the people. We got a Supreme Court going on right now, Bishop Daltrey, that don't give up <clears throat> about nobody in this room. Uh, and and they're, using, they're using the thing we call a Bible to work against us. Bringing up stuff, ain't, ain't nothing in the Bible that, that what they're talking about, but they're using that as their script. Went after Roe v. Wade for no reason. Now, how in the world are you going to be confirmed? Three people were confirmed, and I watched them. Three people confirmed. They said, so we are not going to touch Roe v. Wade because it is precedent. They couldn't wait to get in there and overturn Roe v. Wade. If you can't believe them when they go into the test to see what they're going to do, how in the hell are you going to believe them that they're going to justly rule on the Supreme Court? But Martin said, give us the ballot and we can put the right people in place. We've got to quit practicing insanity. We've got to get with our folks, whether they're on the street corner, in the barbershop, or in the pews, and let them know there is a reason to get out and vote. I'm so thankful for these things we got, these little computers that we walk around, because I wouldn't see so many folks that we have seen, young black men and black women, that's being killed at the hands of those that's supposed to protect and serve us. They're so afraid of us that they're shooting us before asking questions. We wouldn't know this. We knew it was going on, but it is now in front of us. We got to quit practicing insanity and we've got to let these folks know in our community that there is a reason to go out and get registered and to vote. We've got to educate them. We've got to mobilize them. We've got to not only get them to the, to the ballot to vote and elect the right people, but I go back to what Bishop Daltrey said, when they get in the office, we got to hold them accountable. I remember when all of us went out there and elected Barack. And after he got elected, we went home and we put our feet up on the coffee table. Got our brown liquor out, I mean our red boy, I mean our... And said he gonna do it. 
and never helped him and never pushed him. And then when he was running the second time, so many of us said, what has he done for us lately? And the question is, what did we do to make him successful as black people? So, so what I say is, we practice in insanity, Mark, and we've got to quit practicing insanity. We gotta give people a reason to vote. We gotta lay it out there and we got to speak today. 24 starts in February of 23, the 24 elections. We got to start today. Lifting up, and we got to be on that mountain in that meeting that we just heard about and telling people what they need to be doing. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Let me first, uh, of course, give honor to God, but then also thank Dr. Carruthers for uh, honoring me with this invitation to, to share with you all this morning. And uh, of course, I'm just looking over at my brother, uh, my friend, my mentor, my greatest support, uh, Dr. Freddie Haynes, who makes sure that I do not play in traffic. At every turn, he makes sure I don't play in traffic. And of course, my sister, Leah, I'm honored to be on this panel with you and with all of you and, and Mark, my good friend. I shared with him, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian but I am a child of God. And I was born and I was raised in a household of faith. I was raised by a man, Dr. William Augustus Jones Jr., who was, as I like to think, was the freest person on earth because he was certain that his allegiance was not to the flag, but to the cross. He would say, freedom is the ability to say no to a lie, to veto an untruth. So when you're raised in a household like that with a mother who was a powerhouse in of herself, who spoke truth to power, when you're raised in a household like that and you're taught, you hear your daddy on Sunday morning, the Sunday before election day, say, go out and vote, but don't get it twisted. Come Wednesday morning, not much in America will have changed. You begin to understand early in life the game and the game within the game. So Mark, when you ask, you know, where are we as a people? I can't help but think that we still are not appreciating the game within the game. We are operating in a perpetual state of catch up. It is February 22nd, 2023. There will be a general election in November of 2024. And we're sitting here talking about what we got to do. We are catching up. How is it that Roe v. Wade was overturned? They didn't start thinking about that a year before it was overturned. They've been working on that since it was first made law in the 70s. How is it the Civil Rights Act has been undone? Because the minute that the, that the Supreme Court acted on and the legislation came about, I should say, in 1964, they began thinking about how they were going to undo it in the courts. Affirmative action is before the Supreme Court this term. They've been thinking about undoing affirmative action since it was first made law back in the 70s. And we're sitting here thinking, what we got to do for 2024? We got to play catch up. And that is what we're always doing. We are centering on playing a game centered on democracy. The Greek origin of that word is demos, power. 
Demos means power. So we're trying to uphold a democracy centered on power of the people, by the people, for the people, that does not include you and me. So we're trying to uphold a structure that is really not about us. So what time is it? We're operating right now in Chronos time. As dad talks about, I think it's most recently, he's seen in uh, Al Sharpton's documentary, Loudmouth, where he talks about Chronos time and Kairos time. We're sitting here looking at our watches thinking we got maybe about another 400 days before election time. Maybe we need to start thinking about Kairos time. Being forever in the pursuit of justice. There's no seconds and hours and days on Cairo's time. Chronos time, excuse me. Oh, I should have said there is none of that in Cairo's time. We need to be centered on moving and walking ever in pursuit of justice. Not looking at the watch. Now, there's some practical things we need to be doing as we move towards the election, no doubt. But just as Leah said, if we're centering on Cairo's time, then we're ever thinking about who's in position, what our issues are, as, you know, as we're talking about what is our platform. And it's not dependent on any one elected official. So we need to reorient our heads, stop playing catch up, and live in Cairo's time. gratitude as well to you know the entire Proctor family and to these wonderful panelists. I wish they would have let me go first. Um, I want to try to build upon what I have heard and respond directly to the question and not just with a where we are, but maybe even a why we are where we are. Um, it seems like we're at a place where it's easier for us to get people together to elect a pastor than it is for us to get people together to elect a politician. I mean, I mean, you can get folks to pack out of church. I'm talking about folks who ain't been to church in years. You know, everybody gets all of the family members together because we finna vote so-and-so out or vote so-and-so in. Uh, but we can't do the same for political office. But, but, but let's talk a little bit about why. I think we've missed the frame. I, I think we're playing the wrong game. Uh, Bishop Leah said this, and I completely agree, insofar as tools are concerned, that democracy is a tool. Let me evoke the name of Albert Clegg Jr., Jeremoji Abebe Ajaman, who said, there's nothing more sacred to God than the liberation of black people. Uh, so that would mean that the will of God is that black people, not black men, uh, 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 but the liberation of black people. Uh, 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 not black preachers, the liberation of black people. Uh, uh, not just same, you know, not, you know, not one group of black folk, but all, so, so if that's the end game, everything else is just a tool. Democracy is a tool. Religion is a tool. Christianity is a tool. It's not the end game. It's a tool. Womanism is a tool. All of these things are tools, but, but, but we've made some of these things the end game. And so we made them idols. 
And because they are idols, I-D-O-L-S, we've become idol, I-D-L-E. We, we missing up, we, we mixing up the frames. Because we're playing, and, and I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think we have a little bit too much nostalgia around having representation in an unjust system and structure. You can have five black police officers and a black police chief and still end up killing black folks because it is a system and a structure of injustice. You can have a black president of an anti-black government. You can have a black preacher preaching white evangelical theology in black face. We are missing the frame. This ain't the end game, just getting somebody to the Supreme Court, I salute that. Having a black senator, I salute that. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is still a millionaire in the same state and might be wielding more power than some of the senators. So what I think we have to do is shift the frame so that we won't be so idle, won't be so lax, won't be so disconnected, and won't be so caught up in the politics of now. We have to engage in what George Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Let me tell you why Memphis didn't go up in flames. And let me also say, I would not have lost a wink of sleep if it had. The reason that it didn't is not because of some benevolence of a city mayor or a police chief. It is because there had been years of activism and organizing on the front line around these issues so that we had body cameras. Are they the end game? No. But that's the long game. It's a step in the right direction. And we got the previous district attorney out of office. If the previous district attorney had still been in office, Memphis would have been on fire because she was 100% from the field in non-indictments. So it's not ever one thing. It's not ever one election. It's not ever one move. It is all of these things comprehensively. But if we think the end game is just getting more black representation in elected office in a white supremacist country, we're going to keep missing it. There's nothing more sacred to God than the liberation of black people. That's the end game. All right. So how do we get this done? How do we recenter ourselves? We'll go back in the opposite direction. I'll just pick up where you left off. How I do just we said enough. Give me no, I'm just playing. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. How do we get refocused on liberation mm -hmm. at all times, not just in an election season? Right. Right. How do we get moving. And you and I talked yesterday before this yeah. about the importance of the local church mm -hmm. and the local institutions. Mm -hmm. Police are governed locally. Yep. There's no national police oversight. And what do we do? Tyree gets killed and everybody's in uproar all over the country. What's happening in Memphis to actually make some of these people we vote for, black elected officials included, some of whom are in our congregations. But because we see them in church every Sunday, and we see them in the grocery store, 
as Leah said, we don't hold them accountable. Uh -huh. But don't we have to get to a place that even those of us in this realm yeah. got to be got to make folks feel uncomfortable. Just because you're here, you've been my deacon and you're on the city council, mm -hmm. if you're not introducing legislation to give black people civilian oversight, not just mm -hmm. review, mm -hmm. civilian oversight of policing, you got to go. So, so let's start, since this is Lent, with a confession <laughs> that we've been exploited. Because too many of us have been content with being in proximity to those we think are in power. I know folks who will stop the momentum of an entire ministerial movement and moment where God is busy because you didn't stroke their ministerial ego. And they get invited to the room and they don't even know the smell of barbecue Negro. So you at the table, but you on the menu too. So let's confess, we've been selling our people out. We've been selling our people short for a $50,000 grant or an invitation to preach a prayer breakfast. So let's start with a confession. That, that, that's the first place, right? Start there. And all of us got blood on our hands. Ain't none of us, as the preacher talked about this morning, got clean hands. So let's start there. Maybe that'll give us a posture of humility. So now we can be educated. That's, that's what we need. We got so many people who just don't understand the ins and outs of the political system and structure itself. I, I've seen folks get ready to cuss the mayor out because black folks are listed as three-fifths human in the Constitution. He ain't no Supreme Court justice. He the mayor. Some of us don't know whether our cities are structured with heavy executive leadership or heavy board leadership. So if you're in the city of Memphis, the mayor has supreme executive authority. The city council is limited. But if you're in the county of Shelby, the board of commissioners have the authority and the executive is limited. So we got to do some learning, right? We, we trying to hold folks, I guess, accountable, I guess, to some degree, but we don't know where the pressure points are. So we end up picking the wrong sites of struggle and conflict. So we have to spend more time educating ourselves. And I'm talking about faith leaders now. Because some of us think we could just quote scripture and it's supposed to change. No, you, no, you, need, to be able to, you, you need to be able to study the substance of the history that got us to this point politically. And the more we learn that, Brother Mark, and, and, and you know, these are wonderful people to learn from. And I would also encourage you to learn from people locally who have some of the local histories and the local knowledges who, who might never make it to some of the major stages, but they hold the keys to our liberation because they've been learning the system from the front lines on their porches and in their couches and in their bedroom for a long time. So the more I think we learn about, like we need political education. And, and I hope we can create these spaces for learning in our faith communities. But that would mean that some of us got to be a little bit more humble and confess that there are things we just don't know. So well said. A lot to build on there. So uh, the first thing that I'll share is I agree. Confession, education, but education for understanding. 
so much of what we do is we just educate to, to get some knowledge, to say we have knowledge, but not really to understand. I have a 25-year-old daughter uh, who has completed her graduate work and is now struggling. And she, she may be a student forever, and she's gone, she, she may have debt forever, I don't know. But she's talking about become, uh, getting a PhD and a JD. And what she's centering, centering on is that, yes, maybe she'll be a lawyer like her mommy, but maybe she also needs some sociological understandings like her granddaddy. Because we need to understand the sociological underpinnings of the laws of this land. It's not enough just to understand the politics and the laws themselves. But as was talked about earlier by Dr. Johnson, who was, I think she was, she was paraphrasing my father's words, you know, uh, a simple surface diagnosis of the system reveals a sick sociology based on a faulty anthropology emanating from a false theology. What he was saying is that if you build up, if you see God as white, then anthropologically, then, you know, God is a white man. And then sociologically, you're going to order your society accordingly. White man on top, black man on bottom, and in these days, black woman on the bottom, especially when the black woman earns 64 cents in the dollar compared to the white man. So you need to understand these laws and the sociological underpinnings of them. Education for understanding. We come to events, we learn, and then we get excited and we go home. But we don't stay at it. Let's just be clear. We do not stay at it to try to understand what is it that we're actually fighting. And so what I, when I think about what we need to be doing in this moment, and the black church in particular, is centering on understanding for purposes of really getting us fired up to do something. If you don't know how the system works and how it disadvantages you, census, for example, 2020, many of us wanted to stay away from the census because we didn't understand that the census determines how much money flows into your community for childcare, Head Start, for you know buildings, for capital of other types. We didn't understand that. We have to develop education for understanding so that we are then armed to do the work that must be done. And for me, that begins fundamentally Again, something that Dr. Haynes told me I had to put out, put back out, God in the ghetto, prophetic word revisited. And when I went back into it, I understood that dad was trying to help us understand. We're so busy fighting racism every single day. Not realizing that racism is not really what the game is all about. Racism has just proven to be the most effective tool for upholding an unjust capitalist structure. So if you don't realize the game within the game, you're playing the wrong game. So they'll throw, as, as others were saying earlier, uh, DEI and Dr. Johnson, they'll throw at you. Oh, we gonna put a black person in charge over here to run DEI, and as my husband, a corporate exec, will tell you, it doesn't mean a darn thing, because if DEI is not controlling the profit base, they're just smiling at you. They're just letting you go out and have you know, social media posts showing you're posing with this person or that person, but you aren't affecting the bottom line. They haven't changed their products and services. The insurance companies are not looking at how they're charging more in your communities for basic insurance than they are in more affluent communities. Education for understanding. 
We get all unnerved, as we should be, about injustice in policing. But do we take the time to lean in, education for understanding, to see that our children are dying every single day in public schools across this nation? Our people, not just black women and their children, not just infant and maternal mortality rates on the high, obesity, diabetes, asthma, heart disease, cancer. We are dying every single day because we're so busy thinking it's just about racism. It's to, racism to an end, to uphold this unjust capitalist system. So getting knowledge and getting educated for understanding is actually going to the structures. Going to the structures. How this society was created. How the laws were created. And institutions and systems were then built on top of these structures to uphold unjust capitalism. I'm not saying all capitalism is bad, but an unjust system with racism proving to be the most effective tool to determine who has and who doesn't. So let's confess our role in this. Let's get educated, but education for understanding. So then we get organized and mobilized to do the work that's necessary. Thank you, thank you so much. I, I think I wanna make two points here, Mark. Um, one is we need to organize, but we have to organize meeting people where they are, not where we think they ought to be, mm. right? Mm. So many of us go back to school and we get our doctorates and super duper doctorates and we go into our pulpit and we use words that folks don't know what the heck we talking about. We got to break it down to their level. We got to talk to them. Most folks is at a five, uh, grade five uh, reading level. We got to talk to them at their level. You can't talk to them at these doctorate words level that they got to ask somebody when they leave in church what was the preacher talking about. You got to meet them at the level that they are at to get them to go where you want them to go. And, and let me just, my second point, that's my first point, that's simple. Meet them where they at to get them where we want them to go. Educate them from that level. My second point is, pastors, we got to get back to the Great Commission. We don't forgot, we so busy stealing members from the church around the corner that we forgot about all the lost souls out in the street. And if we ain't going out to reach the lost souls in the street, how are we going to tell them or how they going to help themselves? We're talking to the same folks that just hopped from around the corner because we got a new clean sanctuary. We got new pews. We got a new building, a new edifice. We all going around the corner to the new church. We done left our church. Leave them church hoppers alone. Bible ain't getting say go steal nobody members. Bible said go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come. We got to go meet these folks where they are. I, 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 I'm in a church right now. 
where when I was coming up, the whole community, I'm in Lackawanna, New York, there's five, six churches right in a seven block radius. Every church was full to the rafters. If you did not get there for Sunday school, you was not going to get a seat in church. Not no more. Not no more. You get there at 15. 11.30. Quarter to 12, preacher just getting up. You still got room to get in. Why? Because we have forgot the great commission. We forgot our own theology. And then we sit here and wonder why our people are on their way to hell. Because those that are in put in position by the Almighty to go out and reach and bring them in are so busy going out being with the politicians, uh. we're so busy speaking and getting paid to go to the prayer breakfast when they renting collars and we not bringing forth the word because we can't pray about our God, but we got to pray about the universal. We get so busy figuring out how we can lift ourselves up instead of lifting up God that we done lost our way. So I say there are two things we need to do. We need to meet folks where they are to organize them, and we need to go to where folks are and compel them to come to where God wants them to be. have said, and I think one of the most important things that we can do is help folk to understand their power. Mm. We spend our Sundays in our pulpits preaching about the power of God and how the power of God transforms us so that people feel some sense of their own power when they go into their lives during the rest of the week. We often say that we are called to speak truth to power. But what if we are the power that needs to speak truth? All right, all right. But most of us and the people that we work with and the people whom we serve don't have a sense of their own power. Mm. And what they are capable of doing and the change that they are capable of making in their own communities if we focus and keep the main thing the main thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And be able to uh, uh, have permanent friends, but no permanent interests. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Permanent interests, no permanent friends. Right. Right. And be able to maneuver our politics and our power to get what we want. In the absence of that, we show up at the prayer breakfast at the mayor's office with no demands, okay. except for a picture. That we can post on our social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do marches and rallies and then have no demands. Mm -hmm. So, in that way, to me, it's performative. We just go march to march. What you want, what you asking for, and who you asking for it from. And we do that, I think, because we don't really, 
we have not really internalized that we can change things if we exercise the power that we have. It's the difference between running a food pantry from your church and fighting to change food policy. To get rid of food deserts, to ensure people have healthy options in their neighborhood, you can do one. Food pantries are good. Everybody ought to have food pantries. People are hungry. Feed them. But we wouldn't have to have food pantries in our church if food policy was what it should be so that people would be able to have the food that will make them healthy. But why would the, why would the powers that be want us to be healthy? They want to keep us with chronic diseases and with obesity and with health challenges because a weakened people are not a powerful people. And we feed into that. So understanding our power, and we as faith leaders have a particular role in helping people understand the power that they have and that extends to the ballot box. And I, I'm not going to even ask you to raise your hand. Most of us, most people that we work with and whom we serve, couldn't tell you they're elected officials if you paid them. We don't know who's controlling the, the trash pickup or the park or the pollution. We don't know who's voting for Supreme Court justices. We don't know. And so part of our task as we go back to our congregations is to charge people who represents you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Now, in our churches, it's part of our membership process. When you join the church, you got to register to vote. Now, you don't have to vote, but you're going to be registered. And when you stand up for the right hand of fellowship, or the, we call it the glad hand of fellowship, you're going to tell us who your electeds are. So you have an awareness. We know you have an awareness. And so when electeds come to our church, they know they're talking to a registered electorate people who are voting, people who know how to vote. And I always tell people, if your elected official doesn't know your name, you're doing it wrong. They work for you. They need to know who their employer is. Show up at the office. Hello, my name is, and I want to talk to you about the school board or about the curriculum or about the stoplight, or about whatever. If it's congressional, I want to talk to you. My name is, and they ought to know your name, and so when they see you coming, they ought to know that's my constituent, and she cares about this, and I better have an answer. Because if I don't, she'll be back the next day. They work for you. We forget that because we underestimate our own power, and we think it doesn't matter if they don't know our names. Yes, it does. We hired them, we elected them, and we have to hold them accountable. And if we're not willing to do that, we might as well just stay home and not vote. And just let them do whatever the, they want to do. So my, my building, the confession, the education, all of that leads me, is my point. Understand your power. And if we have, we as leaders have a responsibility to understand our power, but help our people understand their power, that is the only way we move the ball forward. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? 
outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Can I just jump in here real quickly and give one example of what you're talking about? So yesterday, we had the Ella Joe Baker luncheon. And I was to sit over there. When I came in, a friend of mine uh, asked that I sit with him at his table. So I said, sure. I sit down, and lo and behold, I'm back to back with Senator Warnock. Now, I got an issue that I'm working on right now, and I'm beginning with my own New York United States senators and uh, with uh, our Brooklyn brother, uh, the minority leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. But I'm like, you know what? Reverend Dr. Warnock needs to be involved in this issue. So I was like, I was supposed to over there, but clearly, in this moment, my power seat is right here, back to back with him. So I lean back, lean back, lean back. And I said, we need to talk. There's an issue that I think you want to be at the forefront on, on the ground, doing the work and being engaged. We decided we were going to talk. That's saying, this is the power spot right now. So I'm going to use it. I don't need a photo op with you. Right? I don't need to say, oh, we got to shake hands. You there to do a certain thing. So if I've been empowered by God to understand what that certain thing is that we need you to do, I'm going to use this moment. Mike, can I jump in before you, Mike? Um, First, I wish one of the elders would just go ahead and cuss to free me so I can cuss too. But, <laughs> but, but, but since they on their best behavior, I'll be on mine. <laughs> but I'm gonna see some of you niggas out in the hallway and we're gonna talk for real. Uh, but but to, to Bishop Leah's point, just right quick, I wanna say in the frame, you know, uh, too often we talk about speaking truth to power. When maybe maybe should, I should have went before you heard. Uh, nah. Well, I knew you wasn't going to cuss, so, you know, you wasn't going to free me I'd up. I would have saved you, though, from dropping the uh, 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 I'm sorry. Negro. Negroes. So, we talk about speaking truth to power, but we also should talk about speaking truth with power while seeking to empower those who have been rendered powerless. That, that's what prophetic ministry and preaching is. It's not just speaking truth to power. Matthew Williams would say, that says a lot about what we think about power, isn't it? Right? But, but the scripture says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of, uh, at least four of y'all went to Sunday school, one of power and of love and of a sound mind. God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the 
power at work within us. So yes, Bishop Lee, it is about us affirming and claiming and cultivating and stirring up that power amongst us. But it ain't just about speaking truth to power. And I don't care about you being my friend while you in public office. I got enough friends. I care about how you perform in that office insofar as those rendered powerless are concerned. You do that, you ain't got to return my text message or my email. I don't, I don't care all about that stuff as long as you are representing for the majority of the people who are your constituents. I, I think that we have to also create um, a coherent or some kind of way to address our disappointment with black politicians. Yes. You know, I, 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 I'm not gonna say it, but. You know, I, I, think, I think it's very disingenuous for all of us to be so upset about black people being killed by the police when we the ones that be asking for the police. You preachers in this room, ask for the police. The people you disciple in your church, ask for the police. When young people were asking to defund the police, you politicians, Black ones weaponize their movement, put a battery pack in the police departments for a whole year. I mean, what are we talking about? It's heartbreaking for me, because I'd be, you know, Black, black, black people, black people, we are dying, man. We being shot, stabbed, sexually assaulted, and ain't nobody trying to stop it. This 300 years of consecutive state terror. We don't even, we don't even want to use the word terror. We got police officers in our churches that we feel more loyalty to. And then when Tyree Nichols get killed, everybody want to be, out, be, be outraged. How can any Democrat who just voted for a Biden crime bill 2.0 in August, I almost went to the CBC convention just to get arrested. 
and shut it down. Because they promised us that they weren't going to vote for that bill without any police accountability measures in it. $13 billion for the next 10 years for policing with no accountability measures. Cities got American Rescue Plan dollars. That was supposed to be used for COVID-19 relief. Crime went up. You Negro preachers and your church members asked for more police. You didn't try to narrate that a once-in-a-generation pandemic unleashed trauma, stripped out a whole generation of seniors and elders so 14, 15, 16-year-olds living outside in the street, in cars, outside our churches. Nobody talked about trying to make sense of why crime went up. When crime was going down, crime right now is lower than it was in the 90s. But you can't tell us that. So I, I don't know. I, I think that the first thing black people need to do is fall back in love with black people. Who told you to hate your own child? I would not give my child over to the Ku Klux Klan under no circumstances. These police, these police, you, no one can tell me, and I need to stop talking because now I'm in my feelings. But I, I, I'm just telling you, somebody got to start telling the truth about our children. We won't talk to black black kids who on the same corner. You go to work, you go to church, you won't stop your car to pull over and talk to a young man or a young woman or someone that look like they 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 all mentally messed up. You won't talk to them. I had a brother send me a text and say they hate black men until they shoot us. And so I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I, I feel very frustrated with black politicians, black preachers, black prosecutors, black police. I, what's some other peas I can, I can throw out here? I'm just tired of you. No, I'm just playing. I, I, I don't. You want I me to do, say it for you? You want me to say it for you? I almost said it. No, I don't want you to say it. I got your back, brother. I got we gotta your back. Elevate, we got to elevate our, 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 our rhetoric. But I, I will say, as I'm just, I, 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 I worry about our credibility as black leaders. I am embarrassed to be called a black leader in the year 2023. I am embarrassed to get up in front of young people and tell them to vote when you got black politicians running cities and nothing changes. I am embarrassed to tell them to come to our churches when they come to our churches and it's a lot of stuff that should not be happening. 
and they see this stuff. And so I, I think we have to have a conversation about how do we resolve disappointment with black leaders. If we are, this is a clergy and lay leader conference, because, you know, some of us just don't like black people, but we want to lead them. You know, Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, you're, you're speaking for me to the fundamental, like one of the fundamental challenges and concerns. So in the, I believe it was in the early 90s, uh, Y.T. Walker, uh, my father, and Hal Carter published a book titled The African American Church, Past, Present, and Future. And in the book, uh, Dr. Y.T. Walker writes, uh, uh, he speaks on the past. He writes an essay about the past, and he says that the, uh, I'm sorry, the present. And he says that the, uh, the black church was birthed, was born in and of a crisis, responding to rejecting structural oppression in the form of slavery. And then he goes on to say, we are yet in another crisis, but what are we doing about it? And that's the question. It's like, you know, we're pointing fingers about racism. We're not centering on internalized racism, which is what you're talking about. But we're pointing fingers at the structure that isn't working for us. But we're not looking at our origins. We were created to reject the structures. But we've just gotten happy with, if we, just, if we can get a few people elected, if we can get a few people into corporate America, right? If we can get a few people on this board and on that, we're doing some good. Right. Not rocking the boat. We're not rocking the boat and we're not centering in the origin. I'm not saying the origin of, you know, of our Christianity, but I'm saying the origin of the black church. Right, right, right. And maybe we need to start doing that. Engage in some self-reflective, critical cr a critique of ourselves. So what is our role in this? Uh, you know, Sister Leah said, she talked about, you know, we're, we're so busy uh, setting up food pantries and soup kitchens. Why are we not challenging why we need food pantries and soup kitchens in the first place? Right, right. Right? right. Poverty management versus poverty eradication. Poverty relief versus poverty uh, liberation. Charity versus justice. We were created to do justice work, and we've stepped away from that. You know, um, just a couple points just to build on what was said. First of all, what Leah said, and we're going to get to some Q&A in a minute. Um, as a matter of fact, in the interest of time, Mama Ava looking at me, and she's uh, clearly intimidates me. Um, the uh, those who have questions, just come come right here by this light stand, and I'll come over and bring the mic to you. If you have questions, go ahead and start lining up. Uh, but Leah, and what Jennifer just built on, I think Dr. King said once, there are good Samaritans that. Uh, will help the person injured on the Jericho Road. But he said, I'm the person that goes further down the road to improve the conditions in the city for when he gets there. That's what we're talking about. Born out of crisis, what you just said, but now operating in comfort. I think that's a sermon title for somebody preaching here. You can get, if you can get to it before I can. Born out of crisis, but operating out of comfort. What he said about the police. Yeah, we do that. 
uh, people forgot about when what happened in Memphis. People forgot. I posted on my Instagram. People forgot about KRS KRS One song, yeah. Black Cop, yes, Black Cop, Black Cop, Black Cop. When our congregants and when our fellow preachers talk about we need more police, and I always ask people this. Let me ask you a question. There's another song, P.E. Head, Public Enemy. Nine one one is a joke. When's the last time a member of your church called the police and actually got a service rendered? They don't, somebody breaking our house, they don't care. Steal the car, they don't. So it's not like the police are stopping crime. And we, as black folk, who pay our taxes, are financing the police to kill us. Tyree's mother and father pay their taxes. They finance those officers, those black cops, and then when the city makes the settlement, because they're still indemnified because of qualified immunity, the tax dollars that Tyree's parents paid are going to go toward the settlement. So they not only have financed that, we are not only financing the killing of our children, but we think we're getting some money back. That's our money that's being paid as well. So black church need to do like Ice Cube used to do before he went to Trump and say F the police. That's the decision we have to make. Leah, you wanted to say, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to, on, on Mike's point about black politicians, we should not think, because it is about power, and it is about the power structure, black politicians cannot be exempt from accountability. And somehow we have internalized that because we elected somebody black to office mm -hmm. that we don't get to ask them no questions and that we just supposed to be so proud to have Barack Obama in office that we don't need to throw up a picket line in front of the White House. And because that is what happened. We elected him. We was proud to have a black president. We ain't, we ain't picket the White House yet. We didn't ask him for nothing. We didn't, we was just happy to have him and Madam First Lady in office. And so he did not deliver anything for us. He, every other community got something. And, we, and I love Barack Obama, but the truth is the truth. And we do that with black politicians. I, and for me, if because it's about power, when we elect, if anything, they ought to be more accountable. We ought to have a bigger list of demands. We ought to have a bigger list of things we want to talk to the police chief about and the mayor about and the Health and Human Services Commissioner. And, the, Bishop, and Bishop, if we is, don't... Is it, is it more, it, should we have more or should we have more precise questions for them? I don't want nobody to gain courage just because not a black person in office. Now you want to hold them accountable for everything. No, I, they I should be held no, accountable. They be need very to be clear. held accountable yes. to do their job. Yes, yeah. I just don't want us to put more of a burden on black folks because we feel more comfortable trying to chastise black politicians. We well, scared. We I've seen black folks coddle the white mayor in Memphis, but, but was roasting the black ones. So, so, so I agree with you in terms of accountability completely. I just want us to be more precise in how we leverage that point of accountability. And the only reason I say more is because we elect black elected officials out of our community so they have a personal experience with the public schools. They, we didn't get them come across the way. We got them because they're in our neighborhoods and in our communities. And so in my mind, that means you know what I'm talking about. 
you've lived this food desert. But that, then that's on us who elected them. But for the most part, they come from our communities. And so in my sense, at least the ones I voted for, so when I see Hakeem, I'm like, I saw you in the path mark. What's up? with the lack of vegetables over here in this here path mark that don't have, I expect you to do something because you in here shopping with me. So let me just jump in here real quick and say what we really need to be centering on, in my opinion, just all the years that I've been in this policy, legislation, program space, seeing that the legislation that's passed doesn't have the impact that we think it's gonna have, the policies, the programs, et cetera. We need to all start getting educated about structural economic deprivation. The deprivation in our communities and among our people is willful, intentional, and it's structural. And it begins with the United States Constitution not having been written for us. It doesn't include us. And there's never been a law in the land that began with us being included in it. It's structural. And the systems, all of these systems, have been built on that, including these political systems. So if you want to really get to the underpinnings and undo it all, you need to be centered on the underlying structures. A system, and I'll quickly say, a system, United States government, that says that a family of four living anywhere in America needs just $27,751 to not be poor, and then bases the federal minimum wage of $7.25 on that threshold, and, and, and determines eligibility for childcare, housing supports, transportation subsidies, Medicaid, healthcare, on that federal poverty measure, that is structural economic deprivation. Right, that's right. And it is being upheld, legislator after legislator, preacher after preacher, politician after politician, we need to be centered on doing, undoing right. that bottom line structure. When we measure what it truly costs to live in this nation, and we've got a data point, then we start talking about fair and equitable. And the only and thing we could ask for and never run out of money for is hiring more police and building more prisons right. or going to war. And so I, I do think it is true, it is a, I mean, this was Dr. King's triplets of evil argument, right? But, but I, I continue to say, because we are at a black church conference and we are black church people, like my, my mentor, one of my mentors told me that the freest place in America should be your pulpit. You get to determine every week what you say to your people, and the reality is, I do not discount how vulnerable black life is. Folk who live in a neighborhood and are dealing with perpetual violence, I, I'm not, I don't discount how afraid a lot of our elders and mothers and folks are who are living in these neighborhoods, got brothers on their stoops and ain't nobody come, but at, at some point, we the black preacher have to cultivate an imagination yes. in our people that integrating into this burning house is not the path to heaven, to, to the, whatever we, how we want to define heaven. And I do think we should leave this conference with feeling a burden around discipleship in this moment 
given the conditions we're in because black elected officials largely come out of our churches. Yeah. Black police officers come. I, I want to know who was pastoring those four police officers. Because I asked the same question about the mass shooter that came to Buffalo. Who is your pastor? Now, I'm hard on white evangelicals, but I'm starting to ask myself, who is the pastors of these politicians, of these prosecutors, of these police officers, unless they just atheists? Some of these folk are attending some of these white evangelical churches, so that makes some sense. But I'm curious, can black politicians, black police officers, black capitalists, black CEOs, can they attend your church and feel good about going to work on Monday and upholding the conditions that kill black people indiscriminately every day and they can sit through your preaching? I don't have no black police officers at my church. I didn't run them off. They said, Pastor, you make me uncomfortable. I said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I don't call your name. Why are you uncomfortable? But that should be true for the CEO. Who's at your church? How can they? I'm just saying discipleship. Let, let, let me just say Mike and, and, and Leah has opened up a door here, opened up a can here. But, but I want to say that there's, there's one thing that is causing the problem. First of all, we got well, two things. One is my color ain't necessarily my kind. And, and we got to understand that. Just because they are color, that don't mean they are kind. There are a whole bunch of folks out there that we can identify that clearly is working against us. But I think the, the main issue is black folks got to get in the room together. Not just the black clergy, but the black community. And we got so many people that want to be at the top of whatever. They want to be at the top of their church. They want to be at the top of their organization. They want to be at the top of something that they want to lead their own rather than all of us coming together. Because I think if, if what Micah said, what Leah said, if we got the same agenda, it's easier to hold people accountable, black, brown, white, whatever. But if we all being picked off one at a time, I'm going to make this black one over here happy. No, I'm going to make this brown one over here happy. No, I'm going to make this woman over here happy. I'm going to make this LGBT group over here happy. And, and I'm okay. No, we got to have this is what we need for all of our people. We need to agree on it. And we need to hold all the Negroes, white folks, and whatever accountable to deliver what they said they're going to deliver. A point of information, Terry Melvin, thank you. Coalition Black Trade Unions. Um, a lot of people aren't aware how many African Americans are now in leadership position, in positions in all of our unions. Can you just address, let people know? Because I don't think people know, you know, we got Fred at AFL-CIO, but I mean, at, can you go down the list real quick? Because those are other positions yeah, of we, power and influence. We have, at the, the number two spot in the entire labor movement is a black man, Fred Redman. We have... AFL-CIO. AFL-CIO. I believe we have five black international union presidents, and I believe there's 12 secretary treasurers uh, that are black right now in the labor movement. Now, back in 72, when Bill Lucy started, he was the only one. So we're making, we're making strides. We ain't where we need to be, but we getting to where we ought to be. Amen. So folks, in this time, we're gonna take some Q&A, and we gotta do a little housekeeping. We're gonna rush through this, and if we have time, um, how many, 
are there any Catholics in the room? Just one? And we've heard all this confession up here and there's only one Catholic. So we may, we may have to end up doing an altar call to pray for, oh, that's true, there you are. Episcopal, Episcopal. y'all do confession? Okay, so maybe we set a little something up and then have an altar call for those who steal in church members and don't know the smell of barbecue Negro. We done heard some words today, Lord have mercy. Now, please, please. So, yeah, yeah, thank you. See, that's why you read my mind. Uh, folks, questions. We don't do that no more. There's nothing. Black folk, we need to be accountable. We like to get them to give speeches. Please, just a question. Hit it, like words, James Brown. Hit it and quit it. Got it. Uh, good morning, Janiqua Johnson, student at Eden Seminary in St. Louis. I have a two-part two question. One, as a faith-based organizer in St. Louis, one of my frustrations has been corralling those pastors who say, I don't do politics. I now understand why Harriet said, shoot some of them. It's fine. <laughs> with that being said, are those who got the clue willing to work with those who don't? Second part of that question is, when you're in your congregations and you understand that you have a congregation that knows their power and they're prepared to exercise it and take those public offices, are you preparing them for office? Are you preparing them to go out and know what's on their ballots and know what they're voting for and understand how it impacts and affects not just them, but those in their community? Who would you like to answer that? Whoever wanted. Give one person to hit that. I'm gonna quickly jump in and say that one of the things that I was uh, told uh, when I started working with faith leaders on policy and systemic issues was that I had to remember that not every black faith leader was involved in the civil rights movement. And so we don't need to necessarily feel like we need to build an army of tens of thousands. And, uh, and there's a sermon that my father once preached that was titled, The Majority That Matters. If you're doing the work that God has called you and purposed you to do, you don't have to now try to go and get everybody to come along with you if you're doing the work you've been purposed to do. Find those who are willing and go with them. Mark, give me 10 seconds, 10 seconds. But we should be committed, as Mike has said, to training and educating our people to engage in the political and civic processes. That should be an obligation of every black church. There's no such thing as an apolitical theology, white supremacy, lie to you. Um, Can I just say one thing? Don't, and we shouldn't feel obligated, the pastor shouldn't be obligated to do the education themselves. Partner with existing community organizations who can come to your church and do the training and do the education. You ain't got, this ain't, we ain't the priests in the Old Testament. You ain't got to do everything. Right, and do that and not be threatened if somebody come to take your church because you've been stealing from everybody else's church. All right. Um, <laughs> Malcolm Kenyatta said, he ran for uh, Senate in Pennsylvania, the brother who lost to Fetterman. He said this, Leah, he said, um, people say, when people say to him, I don't do politics, he has an interesting saying. He said, if you don't do politics, politics definitely does you. Go. Good morning, Countess Cooper from Yale Divinity School. Thank you all for everything that uh, you all are sharing and everything that we are. Beautiful and brilliant, beautiful and brilliant. And we have to keep remembering that. Um, I, I know there's a lot of work going on in local communities, uh, mobilization, uh, things being done. That's how the politicians and other people are getting elected. And, but it's complicated because some of those, some of those police officers that are in your, in your congregations, I mean, they're both sides. I'm in the I'm a military chaplain. There, there, there are a lot of sides. So I guess I'm wondering at a national level, lift every voice and sing. How do we? 
have something at a national level, maybe, if you feel that's important, um, to corral the um, think power of uh, black intellect and thought and action at a national level and have it filter down. Maybe get connected at national, local, uh, and uh, municipal levels. It, and do, or do we already have that? And maybe I missed that. I always think that we, as black people, chase an, uh, a, 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 a false, um, we, we chase something that's not necessary. I think we, we should have bases of power, however we want to define that, or collections of knowledge and relationships that have a didactical like encounter with one another, meaning it's the ironing sharpening the iron. And, and I think we also need to continue to, the scripture says uh, we are all many members, yet one body. The hand don't say to the eye, and the eye don't say to the feet, and the nose don't say, which means that there are roles that people play, but there is, I think, the relationality that I just think is really missing in this moment, given the level of and complexity of attacks we are under. And so I do think it's really important for us, you know, no one should be put out of the community. I, I don't want the black police officer to not be in the community. I just want us to have a level of accountability where are you more accountable to the community you come from or to the institution you are being, you know, integrated into? Whether And that's, that's for all of us. I know we talk about the police a lot, but I'm talking about the police a lot, but it's for all of us. And so I would just say part of the imagination I would like to see us cultivate is the alternatives. We talk a lot about the system and the world as it is, but, but, but I do think we should start thinking about the world that we want, and how do we, as the black church, if we have that ability, be an incubator for that world? If we know violence is a result of trauma inflicted on us, how then do we become healers? If we know we need food, more healthy food, we got the food network that my man Heber and all, how do we become a part of that solution as a model and then maybe begin to scale? I just think the um, imagination has to be a little more cultivated. Um. I, I agree. Uh, Proctor Conference is putting, putting me on Chronos time. Um, so what we're going to have to do, quick question. Mm -hmm. One panelist, quick response so we can run through these five and then do a little bit of housekeeping to transition to the anniversary celebration. Quickly, my brother, please. Yep. Marco Davidson, Eaton alum, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, most powerful scene in Selma was when the president, the president was talking to the uh, governor. And uh, because, I'm, because there's no 25-year-olds or younger in my community, I can, I, I'm an elder now, I curse. Uh, he asked, are you trying to bullshit the president? Um, I learned that in Missouri, we are, as black people, we're only 12% of the voting population. I'm sorry, 12% population, 5% of the voting population. I'm getting the question. Um, we want a black agenda, a black nation agenda, but we don't have enough black people in each state and our nation, we are United, United States. How do we develop, how do we develop a 50 state into each individual state, black power agenda for each state? Uh, to in order to have one main nation national agenda because we don't have enough black people in each state Do it <laughs> Just organize it. Amen How, how, how do you organize that? When you, we so I, I don't believe you need to have a 50 state agenda to have a black agenda I think let me answer your question. All right. I think that 
Jesse Jackson had a, it's the most brilliant piece of rhetoric around rocks laying around. You should go look up the rock speech and appreciate that black people can be the margin of victory or defeat in every significant race that matters to us. And so if Stacey Abrams lost by 50,000 votes, I guarantee you that there's 50,000 folks within the non-voting population that is not the exhaustive black population in the state of Georgia, right? right? And so I think we should be strategic. We should, we should be clear about what victory looks like, but we ought not put an unrealistic expectation on our shoulders. We don't need a 50-state strategy. Just think of what the, the, the very small minority of organizers and folks did during the Civil Rights Movement. Every significant justice issue advance was done by a small minority of committed organizers, institutions, and it catalyzed something greater. That's how we get to some collective agenda. Question, question. Greg Carey, Lancaster Seminary for Pastor Fisher. I know when the Christian Academies opened in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And education is our struggle in Pennsylvania. I wonder if you could comment on your work there. Uh, insofar as education is concerned? Yes, sir. Um, I think the question is rather general. I just believe education has to ultimately be about empowerment and not indoctrination. I think a whole lot of our institutions, whether they are public schools, especially in places like Tennessee, where you have a white nationalist Congress that gets to dictate and determine the, cur the curriculum, or if you have a whole lot of these churches that have independent schools that are indoctrinating people, even black churches with independent schools that are indoctrinating people with white theology, I think you have to deconstruct all of that and ultimately build out whatever it means to have an empowerment-based, localized curriculum grounded in, for black people, black liberation. So that's one of the projects I would probably discuss further as you talk about education. How y'all doing, family? Uh, my question is, what is the importance of black political independence uh, since the insanity of playing catch up in this racist system has left us idle? Do you think that there needs to be an exodus from the two-party political system and organize our own political parties and unions where we can either leverage our voting power or put our own politicians in office that we've birthed and bred ourselves? I, yes, the answer is yes. The two-party system is not the best system, is what we have right now. Building a third party takes decades and money. So while we are, build, while we are building, and in New York, we have the Working Families Party, which, which is a good option. It took decades to, for the Working Families Party to be viable and we put people on the ballot and we win elections in the Working Families Party. So I think that's a viable option. It's a necessary option. We should do that, but we should not step out of the two-party system and not participate in the two-party system. We can do both at the same time. And to answer the brother's question about 50-state strategy, party building in America begins at the local and state level. So that's what you want to do, start building a political party in your city, in your state. That's what we did in Washington, D.C. with the Emoja Party. Real quick. Adore Mary Thomas, educator, school board member, newly minted youth minister, um, and a student at Union Theological Seminary in Newark, New Jersey. Well, New York City, but I'm from Newark, New Jersey. Um, hey. 
jersey in the building, you already know. Question is about young people. How do we get young people to be politically and civically engaged? Young people who are intrigued but exhausted. They are brilliant but they burned out. What is the boundary between realism and reimagination for an incredible generation that is exhausted but has a lot to offer? Legacy, let me, future. Let me jump in here right now. Um, look on this stage. You asking the wrong people. No, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be perfectly honest. I mean, let, I'm gonna give you one quick example. I, I, I tell this story all the time. I, in, in, in 2007, I first came, became the Secretary Treasurer of New York State AFL-CIO. The AFL was having this big meeting there, just endorsed Barack Obama to be president. I'm in this room, and they turn to me and they say, how do we get white men to vote for Barack Obama? I say, hell, go ask the white men. I don't know. I mean, and, and the point, when I go back to you, I'm saying, I'm thinking you talking about the 18 to 30-year-olds. I'm thinking you talking about these young folks that are just coming in voting. How do we get them inspired to go vote? Look, we can all come up here with theology, uh, 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 what we think. But, but how do we get them to vote? We got to, as I said earlier, meet them where they are. So we got to get some young folks in the room to find out what's going to inspire them to want to go to the ballot and make a change in the society that they are looking at they're not, that they're not pleased with so I, right I, now. I disagree a little bit. I think that all of our organizations, hopefully many of them, should be an intergenerational organization. A healthy organization has to be intergenerational. That's African. I think it's important for us to not fall too victim to the balkanization of our community in order to have a strategy. We must have coordination. We must have a collective space where folks' voices and talents and gifts can be appropriately deployed. And so, in our, some of our organizing work, we have youth organizing spaces where they are empowered. But most young people need resources. They need a ride to the to the, to the meeting. They need their parent. You better get some parent or somebody to sign off on the, all the stuff the young people are doing. So I think we should. I think the key to young youth organizing is having a deep intergenerational incubator, whereby young people are welcome to the space but they are appropriately engaged. A young person should not be exhausted working for justice. That's right. They're, they're a child. They, they, they should be introduced. They should be inspired. But child labor laws are in place for a reason. We are not exhausted. I have children who watch their father do ridiculous things. And I tell them, it is not your job at 11, 12, 13-year-old to be trying to organize against police brutality. You need to go to school and learn how to have good social interactions with your friends, to love your black skin, to love your hair, which is an issue for my daughters right now, right? In an anti-black, they had their own stuff they try to deal with, not defeat white supremacy. So let's not put our children out there to do things that you won't ask the people in your own church to do. Thank you, sister. Thank you. I, I know you know the answer to your own question, too. We do need to hear from the young people, and it must be, if we're African people, we're elders and youth. Come on, brother, real quick question. Yes, my name is Walter Byron from Chicago, and I'm just a plain veteran. 
But the problem is, not black people, it's us. The problem is us. Okay, my question. Can we as black people and black churches pick a day or a few days where we can withhold all of our money? Economics is the power to this problem. We don't have an economic base that will get us over the finish line. We have been bred to be divided. So can we come together on that? We spend our money going out, nothing comes back in. All right, all right. So can we hold our money and use it to better our people? We can do that, but that's going to, frankly, it's going to get us but so far because everybody's not going to align. And if you're not dealing with the overall structural underpinnings, again, I go back to, if you have a system that allows for a federal minimum yes. wage, does not ensure that people can have income to take care of their families on a regular, then what money are they withholding You know, when you engage in this process? They don't have discretionary income that allows them to withhold it, right? So if you don't center on the economic base and figure out how to restructure it, we don't need another election. We don't need a new president. We don't need a new Congress to change the federal poverty measure. We need an administrative guideline change with which President Biden can do all by himself. So we need to center on how do we change the structural underpinnings that begin to help us build income, whether it's within the system or what's outside of the system. We need to center on economic structures that withhold monies from our communities that don't allow us to build in our own communities and keep our dollars within our communities. That's when you start doing the work and you start to see a change because again, this is not just about racism. This racist society is in place to uphold an unjust capitalist structure. So until you center on the end game, we can talk all we want to about what we need to do to improve race relations or have them see us. The game is about an unjust capitalist structure. Demos, demos is power. Power is money in America. Until you figure out how to up, 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 uh, you know, up disrupt this game that is intended to keep people down, and not just people of color, but disproportionately Amen. people of color. Amen. Until you do that, we're not getting anywhere. So I know we're trying to wrap, and at the risk of incurring the wrath of Mama Iba, I wanna, I wanna take us back to, we started this conversation about 2024. And I want us, as we are looking toward 2024, to pay attention to the narratives that are beginning to unfold about this presidential cycle. And I wanna particularly focus on the fact that we have a black woman as vice president of the United States. Pay attention to how they are starting to talk about her and starting to talk about she doesn't have a portfolio and she's not doing that. Who in this room can tell you what Al Gore did? Who can tell you what Dick Cheney did except shoot his friend? Who knows what Mike Pence did? We done had a string of mediocre white men who we can't articulate what they did, but now a sister is in the office and we want to talk about what she is doing, did do last. We all know the role of the vice president is don't go to dead people funerals. That's what they do. But now that it's a black woman there, the standard has risen 
and let's talk about the fact that in all of these years, the assumption has always been that if the president doesn't run, the vice president is the nominee of the party. Why are we having a conversation about Pete Buttigieg? Why are we having a conversation about all these other mediocre white people? What have, there is a vice president in office, and by the traditions of the political system, she should be the heir apparent. Notice the narrative that Man. they are building right. against this sister and how this is going. And I don't care if you don't like Kamala, that's not really the point. Right. The point is she's a, she's a representative of us, and when they look at her, they see a black woman and that they are start trying to stop because God forbid there's a black woman in the first chair at the White House. So the narrative is important. It's important that we dissect it and analyze it and be aware of it so that we can challenge it. And, and, and ask yourself this question too. Why would you think a mediocre white man would do more for you as the president of the United States than a black woman? You ought to ask yourself that question. You ought to ask yourself that question because your answer to that question may therein demonstrate why some black folk ought not lead black people. Um, as we get ready to close, a little housekeeping, but probably an improper way to describe it. Um, two pieces of action we're going to take right now. Everybody in the back, people out there, ask him to step in for a minute. Everyone take out their phone and go to your internet browser on your phone. And then I want you to put this in your browser. You're going to go to this, this web address. Let me first of all say this. Biden flew to Ukraine, took $500 million. Now, we're getting ready for Selma as usual. I had to step out of Ebenezer the other night to take the call. From the White House, we we ready to talk about coming to Selma. I said, "Well, you can't go to Ukraine and take 500 million, and not bring some money to Selma after the tornado and the ongoing. Everybody comes through Selma and leaves it as it is. In addition to that, the party that we all vote for disproportionately had 217 yes votes for HR 40 during the lame duck. Even white members of Congress were on the bill." and people were afraid to pass the reparations bill. Now it's been reintroduced in the new Congress. We have to start over again. We don't control the House anymore, so it won't pass. It's a commission to study what reparations will be, not whether there should be reparations. Biden can do this by executive order. I want you to go to reparations.repair slash executive order. I think Jamar is going to email this to everybody too. Reparations.repair slash executive order. Bishop Vashtad and the National Council of Churches are asking every clergy person in this country to sign that letter to demand Biden appoint the H.R. 40 commissioned by executive order. Please sign that. Please, ma'am. Please, sir. As you sit there, reparations.repair slash executive order. Everybody see it? Go ahead and do that right now. Uh, secondly, this has been, again, a powerful experience. Where else can we come together and sit at the feet of Jeremiah Wright? 
who was not afraid to call truth to power. Dr. Bozak isn't here now, but future meets legacy. I was 18 going to jail and getting kicked out of school in the anti-apartheid struggle because I idolized Alan Bozak. Proctor made it possible for me to touch the hem of his garment. Did you hear what he said last night? We heard Michelle, God bless her. And that powerful and courageous exegesis, nothing like we've ever heard before because most preachers are afraid to preach that. Some of us met last night and started planning more of her future. We'll keep her informed. But Dr. Bozak called out the president of South Africa. That's what we've been talking about today. But the Proctor Conference makes this possible for us. The Proctor Conference, amen, must be sustained. We subscribe to these white racist mainstream newspapers. We subscribe to all these apps on our phone. We're going to subscribe to the Proctor Conference. And I want every, and, and so they can build an app. I want everybody here and everybody on the sound of our voice, even those of us out in the hallway, I don't know what they're talking about, to pledge to send, henceforth and forevermore, $10 a month to Proctor. Where's Jamar? Jamar, is Jamar in here? You follow me? You put, we need to put that on the app too. $10 a month. Or more. I want to see by a show of hands who's willing to pledge $10 a month. Or more. And just, if you can just do 10 even. If you can do more, please. $10 a month. To Proctor. We subscribe to everything else. We got to subscribe to Proctor. So we can prescribe Proctor to our people. I think that's another sermon title too, Freddie. We got two couple sermon titles up here. Subscribe to Proctor so we can prescribe Proctor to our people. And Jamar knows how to reach everybody. We'll, we'll figure out a way to make that even easier and direct. And then use some of that money to build a Proctor app so we can stay connected and organized and build in that regard. Yeah. Folks, this has been an incredible panel. We learned some things put in a way we've never heard them before. Some don't know the smell of barbecue, Negro. Pastor Mike, give it up. The most excellent Bishop Leah Daughtry, give it up. The Reverend Dr. Terry Melvin, representing us in the labor community. A lot of these labor organizations were racist for years and wouldn't allow us to get jobs. Terry Melton, give it up. Racism, poverty, human rights are now in the New York Constitution because of Jennifer Jones Austin. Give her a round of applause. That was on the ballot, hold it, that's important. Sometimes it ain't just about electing people, you can put ballot initiatives on the ballot. Akron police shot the brother 47 times in June. In November, they passed a, a resolution on the ballot so that the civilian community has oversight of the Akron Police Department. And that's more fearful to the police than just protesting. Jennifer Jones Austin, give her a round of applause.
Last but not least, I want to be cussing preacher, Dr. Earl Fisher. Give him a round of applause. We'll bring Jamal Boyd back again. A round of applause for the queen mother of this movement. The last person to pop me in a service was my grandmother. And this summer, the Black Church Summer, she popped me. So that's the influence she has. We thank you, Mama Alvis. We turn this back over to our dear friend and brother, Apostle Jamal, Jamal Boyd. Go right ahead. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.